Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and our theme this week is happiness. Now, happiness is a, it's a funny thing, you know? I mean, we can't see it, we can't wrap our hands around it, and yet we all want it badly. And that goes all the way back to the founding of our nation, you know, the whole life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness thing. And if you fast forward to today, we're still happiness happy. Authors have published more than 4,000 books on the subject. Happiness and positive psychology courses are cropping up all over college campuses. And now software developers are getting in on the game, too. Witness the newly launched app Happier, which is said to help us achieve bliss with our smartphones. So this hour, we're going to take a closer look at this crazy little thing called happiness. We'll meet people finding contentment despite tumultuous turns of fate. Like, I want to be able to know that I can pay my bills and have a good house and maybe a fancy car. (laughs) And we'll hear from other people who say happiness is about appreciating life's little joys. He had this huge smile, and it was like, all day. (laughs) And every time I looked at him, I giggled, and he giggled. Plus, we'll dish on dishes from the world's happiest nation as we continue our Eating in the Embassy series. We have uh, mackerel or herring, meatballs, and uh, pickled uh, food. And we'll find out what makes this woman's heart ring. It kind of lifts you off the ground. I mean, emotionally, not necessarily physically, better not. (laughs) But first... If I were to ask you how happy you are, like not right this minute, but in general, on the whole, how would you respond? I think I'm pretty happy. I could be happier. Very happy. Very happy. I'm very happy. In general, I'd say I'm very happy. I won't say I'm necessarily happy, but I will say I'm content for the most part. Well, we're about to meet a guy who's been studying how people answer that very question for nearly 40 years. If you could just um, introduce yourself and let us know who you are. John Robinson, Department of Sociology at the University of Maryland. And Robinson has been looking at that happiness question as it relates to two other questions, both about how people view their time. The first... Would you say that you always feel rushed, only sometimes feel rushed, or almost never feel rushed? And the second... How often do you have time in your hands that you don't know what to do with? Most of the time, some of the time, none of the time. Putting the happiness question aside for just a second, it's interesting to note that, according to Robinson's analysis, the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as always feeling rushed actually went down between 2004 and 2010. And that was really a surprise to me, particularly with all this new technology that we have, which is very time-demanding. I know I have a hard time dealing with it. It raises my blood pressure. And something else that surprised Robinson is what happens when you bring the happiness question in. According to his research, the people who report being the happiest, about 8 to 12 percent of Americans... say they almost never feel rushed, and they do not have time in their hands they don't know what to do with. And Robinson isn't the only happiness researcher intrigued by this finding. I was surprised to find that people who had a lot of excess time on their hands reported being less happy. I would have thought that the relationship would go the other way around. Eric Agner teaches philosophy, economics, and public policy at George Mason University. But I guess that people who have leisure and who fill it with meaningful things um, tend to be happier, although they report they don't have excess time. Which makes sense, right? Though Agner, who studies happiness from a more philosophical point of view, not sociological, says he does kind of wonder how people are interpreting this question of having time on their hands. So somebody who spends six hours watching television a day, would he or she say that he's got excess time on his hands? Well, you know, I would think that he or she does, but the person who does that might nonetheless feel like he or she's got a busy day. 
Actually, it's funny that Eric Engner should mention television because in a separate study John Robinson conducted, he found an interesting correlation between TV watching and happiness levels. The more people watch television, the less happy they are. Is it because they're seeing these beautiful people on TV and, and they just can't be that gorgeous and famous and uh, wealthy? Uh, it would be nice to think that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's just the fact that television is an activity that people choose to do when they don't have anything else to do. That probably defines the kinds of people who have time in their hands they don't know what to do with. Which brings us back to our seeming paradox, the fact that our busiest Americans seem to be the most blissful. I think it has to do a lot with control. If you don't feel rushed, that means you're feeling some control. I think if you feel always rushed, generally I think that says that there's outside pressures that are impinging on how you feel. And the same thing is true with regard to having time in your hands you don't know what to do with. If you have your life scheduled in such a way that you have them under control and you're not doing nothing while just waiting for things to happen, that seems to be a combination which leads to quite a jump in people's perceived happiness. And if we want to talk about a combination which leads to quite a drop in people's perceived happiness? You figured out that the least happy group was the people who had a lot of excess time? And who felt always rushed. It's those two conditions. It's pretty much a Goldilocks thing. You don't want too much excess time. You don't want too little. You don't want too much rushing. You don't want too little. You want it to be just right. Or as Robinson wrote in a recent issue of Scientific American, happiness means being just rushed enough. Yes. That may be a bit uh, commonsensical, but it is the case. So the takeaway line in it is, is don't hurry, be happy. <laughs> <laughs> To read more on John Robinson's study on happiness and hurrying, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Een heel jaar werken, dat valt niet mee. Maar dan lekker niks voor een week of twee. Don't worry. We turn now from the happiness of adults on the go to the happiness of children at play. D.C. Mayor Vincent Gray has designated $35 million for Play D.C., a plan to renovate 32 of the city's 78 playgrounds through the Department of Parks and Recreation. Emily Berman trekked across the district to check out these playgrounds in progress. The Tacoma playground is surrounded by fencing and construction equipment. Everything that's here now, all the swings, ladders and slides, they're all on their way out. Now we have the largest playground improvement project in the history of the District of Columbia, ladies and gentlemen. Mayor Gray is ceremonially breaking ground here at Tacoma, but work has already begun on playgrounds all over the city. By the end of September, Play DC will completely renovate 32 playgrounds. So I think we're definitely doing the ones that really, really needed it. I mean, there were some where we're in pretty rough shape. Bridget Stesny is the chief operating officer of the district's Department of Parks and Recreation. So we're looking at everything like from the equipment to the demographics of the neighborhood, shade, does it have water fountains, all of those things kind of equate into how we're prioritizing the playgrounds. All the old equipment is being scrapped. The new parks are safe, she says, but also innovative. So Tacoma, we always think about the big trees. 
So the equipment looks like a tree house and there's lots of like log climbers. We'll have slides coming down the hillside and then we have a little skate spot for that like that tween age group. At the Harrison Playground near U Street, the equipment looks like musical instruments in honor of the neighborhood's jazz heritage. In the Palisades, where Native Americans settled along the Potomac River, the playground design is more natural with climbing rocks and archaeological carvings. But the kids' play area is only one element of a playground redesign. Jesus Aguirre is the director of the Department of Parks and Recreation. Play DC is sort of a culmination of just our thinking. How do we create spaces where we want all families and generations to be outdoors and to be experimenting and playing and and, and really just being active? These parks are for the whole family, Aguirre says. There's outdoor fitness equipment for adults, community gardens, and for the first time ever in D.C., a playground that's entirely accessible for people in wheelchairs. Stephanie Sparks bangs the bongo drums at the Rosedale Community Center in Ward 6. Her firm, Sparks at Play, helped to design the district's first playground built specifically for children with special needs. Everything that's in here was done with a lot of thought to make sure that it's wheelchair accessible and that all of the play panels are actually things that a child in a wheelchair can pull directly up to, not go over the edge and be able to play with. The site is near St. Coletta Special Education Public Charter School. And when it opens to the public on May 31st, kids will find quiet spaces, wheelchair swings, a merry-go-round, and family picnic areas. On the other side of the city, at Forest Hills Playground, which will be renovated later this summer, the kids are going wild. My favorite spot is those, I like those wiggly monkey bars over there. Alexander Simone flies across the monkey bars in record time. You've been practicing a lot? Every day. The $35 million going toward Play DC will cover 32 playgrounds. Pair that with the sites renovated over the past few years, and by the end of the summer, more than half of the 78 playgrounds in D.C. will be brand new. There's an additional $4 million in the mayor's 2014 budget to continue the project. It is part of a national trend that's going on right now. I'm here with Karen Ernst. She's a senior advisor at Kaboom, a nonprofit that advocates for play in lower-income communities. The mayor of Pittsburgh about 10 years ago took on initiative to create 200 new playgrounds in the city. In Chicago, Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced a plan to rebuild 300 playgrounds over the next five years. In New York, Mayor Bloomberg has worked with the public schools to open up schoolyards for neighborhood children to play after hours. We know that people are more likely to move um, to neighborhoods that have good park and, and playground resources. And we also know that people are more likely to stay in those neighborhoods and choose to raise their kids in those neighborhoods long term if they're designed around families and designed around kids. So it really is a, is a long term strategy for improving neighborhoods. And that in the end will, will improve economic development in the city overall. With the city's population and land values on the rise, the government will have to get creative about how it builds new green spaces. Jesus Aguirre of the Department of Parks and Rec says the goal is to work with D.C. public schools and the National Park Service to open up more space to the public for free play and outdoor fun. I'm Emily Berman. To see renderings of some of the new playgrounds underway, head to our website, metroconnection.org.
time for a break, but when we get back, we'll meet a D.C. student who's overcome danger and heading toward a bright and happy future. When I graduate, I want to be able to say I was in the top five or I was number one, which I was in the beginning of the year. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today our theme is happiness, and in this next part of the show, we're going to meet people who found happiness despite some big challenges. We'll spend time with a D.C. teen who overcame major trauma and landed a full-tuition college scholarship. We'll also talk with a Maryland mom whose son's rare illness is helping her redefine happiness. First, though, we'll head out on the waters of the Chesapeake Bay, the domain of the hard-working watermen. Watermen's lives seem to be getting more challenging each year, what with increasing pollution, dwindling supplies of fish and crabs, and more and more catch limit regulations. But the waterman we'll meet next is staying positive against the odds. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us his story. Robert T. Brown eases his 42-foot bay-built fishing boat away from his property along St. Patrick's Creek in St. Mary's County, Maryland. So how many times have you been out on this same stretch of water? I don't know, I've been coming out of this creek since I was a teenager. The 63-year-old Brown, or Robert T., as his friends call him, is headed about five miles out towards the mouth of the Potomac River to check on one of his fishing nets. And if you think 63 sounds a little old for a commercial fisherman, you're right, but only just. Brown is only a few years above the average age of a Maryland waterman. He says there are just not many young people signing up for a job that guarantees hard manual labor but doesn't offer health insurance. It's tough. It's it's a hard way. If you're not really raised on the water and get it in your blood, it's not nobody else really going into it. Brown says being a waterman is even tougher than it was when he got started on his own about 40 years ago. But looking for another line of work just isn't an option. I've got a high school education. Where am I going to go? And who wants to hire somebody that's 63 years old who has no other experience than what we have done around here? Uh, in the water business, you know, you don't have no other choice, really. Brown may not have a choice, but Mick Blackstone, the executive director of the Maryland Watermen's Association, says watermen like Brown are constantly adapting to changing conditions. It's a skill that's served them well for generations. Well, they're very good at rolling with the punches. Um, That's for sure. They roll with whatever hits them because this is what they do. And This is what their fathers did, their grandfathers, the other men or women in the community. So a lot of them grew up with this. Back on the Potomac, we've reached Brown's net. If you've never seen a pound net set up in the water before, the first glance can be a bit eerie. Most of the contraption is underwater, so from a distance, all you can see is a series of telephone pole-sized logs poking out of the water like a wooden version of Stonehenge. When the fish swim upriver, when they run into any obstacle, the nature of the fish is to come out and swim 
out deep to go around it. Pound nets take advantage of that instinct, funneling the fish into an enclosure as they swim away from shore. Brown's crew of two 20-somethings, Dusty Anderson and Speedy Lion, start bringing the net up to the surface. Even at 63 years young, Brown does his fair share of the hard labor, but today he gets little for his effort. The haul is mostly made up of rockfish. I mean, there's plenty of rockfish, and you can see it's all size. I guess the biggest ones we have were 10 or 12 pounds, and then you got some smaller ones. The problem is that rockfish season doesn't start for two more weeks, so keeping them now would be illegal. When it's all said and done, they've thrown what would have been $8,000 worth of rockfish back into the water. It doesn't make for a great start to Brown's week, but he reluctantly admits that the state and federal management plans put in place for the bay and its fisheries make sense. We would have had a good catch if we could have kept them, but uh, the only thing about that is you wouldn't get the money that you get for them now if everybody was fishing like we used two years ago, and we got to manage the resource. Brown's energy is remarkable for his age, and he shows no signs of slowing down or even becoming bitter about new regulations or the ever-present threat of pollution. Mick Blackstone says the secret to how watermen like Brown stay positive isn't really a secret at all. I mean, they don't want to do anything else. They, that, that's the secret, is they don't want to do anything else. But ask Brown about his children, and you can sense that he does see the end of a long line of Brown watermen on the horizon. He says both of his sons love working on the water but simply can't afford to make a living without benefits like health insurance and retirement. One son has children of his own to support and has a good job working for Verizon. He's planning on coming back once he retires. You know, and that's, that's what you're looking at. You know, it's a lot of people throughout the state who have had to leave the seafood industry and get a job. And that's just it. Being a waterman isn't a job. It's a way of life. And it's a way of life that Robert T. Brown isn't about to give up, no matter what the changing tides bring. You can't give up. You just can't give up. If you give up and don't fight them and keep trying, you're gone. So you just don't give up. If you give up, you're over with. I'm Jonathan Wilson. now, it's a very happy time for thousands of students across our region as they don their caps and gowns and get their diplomas from high school. And one of the happiest of those students may very well be Sharnika Glasby. Sharnika is finishing up her studies at Phelps Architecture, Construction, and Engineering High School in Northeast D.C., and she's overcome some pretty daunting challenges to make it this far. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza has been sharing the stories of students like Sharnika for the past three years in a series called Beating the Odds. And over the next few weeks, she'll bring us a new crop of graduating seniors, starting with Sharnika. 18-year-old Shanika Glaspy is one of those students who squeezed every moment out of high school. She was in Model UN, Shakespeare Scholars, and Choir. She was an athlete, taking part in softball, volleyball, and track. And she was an honor roll student, maintaining a 3.7 GPA. I do like being a good student, and when I graduate, I want to be able to say I was in the top five, or I was number one, which I was 
in the beginning of the year. Shanika was the top student in her school, but then... The incident happened. The incident is Shanika's shorthand for the day she was shot on her way to school a few months ago. It was a normal day. I was rushing out the house, and I'm walking down the street, my iPod and my phone in my hand, changing the song. She was a few blocks from her home, close to the Anacostia metro station, when a man suddenly came up to her. He's wearing a mask, and he's like, give me your bag. It didn't really register, and he shoots me. All I hear is a really loud, just popping sound. She describes feeling a searing sensation. The bullet hit just above her knee and went through her leg. There was blood. My whole pants leg was soaked. Yeah, I'm like, am I going to die from this? Like, it was just so much. Shanika limped toward her house. When the police came, I was still crying. When I was in the ambulance, I was still crying. They were trying to talk to me and calm me down. But it was like I couldn't really get a hold of myself. Shanika says this happens a lot in her neighborhood. She just didn't think it would happen to her on her way to school wearing her uniform. She missed a month of school as her leg healed. Some worries, like... Will you be able to see the scar when I wear a skirt? Faded after a few weeks. But some wounds are still with her. It'll make you paranoid all the time. It's like, I will never go back to the time where I can just walk down the street blasting my music or with my iPod in my hand. You're always looking behind you. You're always wondering if the person sitting next to you is going to do something bad. It's like, really stressful. Her schoolwork suffered when she missed weeks of class. I haven't been able to come back with the grades I have gotten in the past. Like I still get A's and B's, but there's an occasional C that's just killing me. And it's because I don't understand the lessons I've missed. And like In math, it really set me back. Plus, other challenging classes like my digital electronic class and my engineering class set me back in those, so I have to catch up in those too. It was like, when did we learn this? <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, yeah, it was that class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was out. <laughs> Shanika wants to be an engineer. In my family, most people have not gone above high school education. They got a job right after high school, or they tried college and they got pregnant or something, and I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be dependent on like the government welfare or food stamps. I've seen that look of defeat. I don't want that life. I want a better life. A better life for Shanika doesn't mean fancy clothes or expensive meals or exotic vacations. I want to be able to go to school. I want to be able to say I've got my master's degree and have, like, an awesome job that's, like, that I, you know, won't be able to get fired because <laughs> I have, like, good education. Like, I want to be able to know that I can pay my bills and have a good house and maybe a fancy car. <laughs> Shanika says she has a big, supportive extended family who have been there for her when she faced other challenges. A mother on drugs, bouncing between relatives, a custody battle. And school has also helped her cope with the shooting. It's still a terrible subject, but it's not as terrible as it could be. It's really stressful, but then you have the people in your life that makes it better. While she was recovering from her wound, school staff brought her food and helped pay her senior dues. Her friends helped explain classwork and cheered her up. 
and best of all, she started hearing back from colleges with acceptance letters. She laughs and remembers what she was focused on after she was shot. What was in my bag was really important documents. I had to submit those so my transcripts would be sent off to the colleges. So the one thing I was thinking about was, I have to get back to school, I have to turn those in. You got shot and that was one of the things on your mind? A lot of people say that. They were like, you got shot and you were worried about college applications. Yes, I was. Because the deadline was really close. Shanika Glaspie is going to Penn State to study engineering in the fall. I'm Kavita Kadusa. We'll be sharing more of Kavita's Beating the Odds series over the next few weeks, so stay tuned. From southeast D.C., we'll head up to Frederick County, Maryland, to the little town of Jefferson. That's where you'll find Michelle and Dustin Slater, a couple for whom happiness is all about a chromosome, or rather, the lack of a chromosome. Their son, nine-year-old Jake, has a complex genetic disorder known as Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome affects one in every 12,000 to 20,000 people. And one of the main characteristics of the disorder? Happiness. Lauren Ober visited the Slater family and brings us their story. (laughs) My name's Michelle Slater. I am the mother of Jake Slater, and he is nine years old, and he has Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome is a genetic disorder where Jake is missing part of chromosome 15, and that presents itself in many ways. In his case, he has seizure disorder, reflux, learning disabilities, and movement disorder. He has uh, difficulty walking. He is nonverbal, but he's able to communicate a little bit. It's getting better now with the use of the iPad, Um, but we work with him daily on every facet of his life, from walking to feeding to communicating his wants and needs. You want to go outside now? (laughs) Jake, do you want to go outside? Clap if you want to go outside. Angelman kids are very happy. They have a happy disposition. I don't know what causes that. I don't think the doctors know what causes that. There's something with that chromosome that affects your disposition. If we knew what that was, I'm sure they'd be capturing that and somehow doing a drug to get all these unhappy people happy again. And I'm sure maybe in the future they'll figure it out. But for right now, all they know is that piece of the chromosome has some effect on your disposition. And in in their case, it's that it makes them happy. And I don't, I can't explain it, but I think it's great. And it's actually been an amazing thing because I don't think that if he wasn't happy or if he was unhappy all the time, I think I'd be in a much more of a state because I think he brings happiness to us by his smiles and his laughter. When he laughs, he makes other people laugh. Laughter is contagious. Everybody knows that. And so when he smiles and he starts waving at people in the store and they look at him, they have to wave back. And if they don't, he kind of scowls like, what's wrong with that person? Jake was not hitting all of his milestones. He was moving further and further behind. He wasn't sitting up and doing the things he should do. We we went to the geneticist. She was pretty sure he had Angelman syndrome based on one other case that she had. 
So we tested him and then we found out later at 12 months old that he had Angelman syndrome. The internet is your best and worst friend because the first thing you do, and the doctor tells you not to, don't go on the internet and read all about this because you're going to get freaked out. But of course, the first thing I did was I went on the internet and I read all about them. And of course, we were, we were pretty devastated. It's still hard, but when you see these kids, they're so awesome and they're so much fun. <laughs> you see, you see the swing? You want to go in the swing? I think when you grow up and you say, I'm going to have children, I'm going to have a family, they're going to go to school, they're going to go to college, they're going to get married, all those things I think is what you perceive to be a happy life. And then when you find out that that's not exactly going to happen the way you thought, then you go through this period of, oh, woe is me, my kid's not going to do X, Y, Z. And then you start to realize, you know what, Jake is so happy and he's such a great kid that I'm so glad he's in our life because he's brought to us so many things that we wouldn't have ever recognized and so many people that we've met and the things that we do on a daily basis are totally different than what we had done if we had lived in this little bubble of the perfect world. (laughs) So exciting, I know. Swing time is exciting. I constantly say, really, is that going to make you upset today? Really, you know, in the big picture of life, is that a big deal? And I think it just keeps you grounded to know that, you know, you have this this little boy. He struggles daily, but he keeps a smile on his face, and you're thinking, well, if he can do it, then I can definitely do it. That was Michelle Slater talking about her nine-year-old son, Jake. Their story was produced by Lauren Ober. We have more information about Angelman syndrome and photographs of Jake and his family on our website, metroconnection.org. You know what makes us happy here at Metro Connection? Hearing from our listeners. So now we'll share a few of the messages we've received from listeners like you. On our recent Winging It show, reporter Phil Harrell profiled Sean Westfall, who's celebrating his 10th anniversary of teaching improv in Washington, D.C. We received a tweet from at Kevin Walsh Vox, who wrote, Sean Westfall taught me improv. He's a very talented and funny man. Well-deserved. And on our motherhood show, Emily Berman brought us the story of Twanda Washington, a career woman who became a mother in her early 40s. Listener Marcel wrote, Such a touching account of the early days of motherhood. My mother always told me that an overwhelming amount of love is present when your baby is born. Maybe all-encompassing is a better description. If you have a message you'd like to send us, our email address is metro at wamu.org. Up next, it's the latest in our Eating in the Embassy series as we visit the D.C. digs of the world's happiest nation. So I would say seafood and oil and the smaller cities we have. That's the secret to happiness? It could be. Plus, we'll turn to you to hear your happiest memories. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are pursuing happiness. In just a bit, we'll ring out some happiness at the Washington National Cathedral, and we'll hear from you, our listeners, about your own happiest memories. But to kick off this part of the show, we're going to grab our knives and forks and head out of the country without even leaving D.C. It's a brand new edition of Eating in the Embassy, our ongoing series with local food blog Eater D.C., where we chat and chew with embassy chefs throughout Washington. Since this week's show is all about happiness, we decided to sample the cuisine of the nation that's currently ranked the happiest in the world. Norway. Makes sense, because we have, like, such small towns and, like, taking care of our neighbors a lot and uh, eating seafood a lot. (laughs) That's the secret to happiness? Yeah, it could be. And this guy should know, because up until about nine months ago, he lived in Norway his entire life. I'm Simon Itza from uh, Norway. I've been here since August uh, last year. Simon came to the States to be the chef at the embassy of Norway. And when I say the chef, I literally mean the chef. I'm alone here in the kitchen, so I I do all the stuff myself. It turns out there's a lot of stuff to do. The embassy serves 4,000 guests per year. So Simon's constantly preparing breakfasts, luncheons, afternoon teas. He also does buffet dinners for up to 120 people. What is that like to cook for 120 people by yourself? It's really busy. (laughs) But as you can hear, Simon doesn't let it get him down. In fact, the entire time I chatted with the 22-year-old chef in the embassy kitchen, his smile barely faded. And it got even bigger when he talked about traditional Norwegian foods. We have uh, mackerel or herring. Meatballs and uh, pickled uh, food, smoked salmon, of course, dumplings. There was so much to choose from, you know. And those are just main dishes. Simon says he also enjoys making desserts, often from his grandmother's recipes. Sweet treats like waffles, wafflor, pancakes, pannekaker. And this delicacy that takes cloudberries. It's called molte in, in Norway. It's like a yellow a raspberry almost. And smothers them in whipped cream and crumble topping. Uh, it's like really fresh and like natural. In fact, Simon's has a great deal of Norway's cuisine is fresh and natural with its emphasis on local ingredients from reindeer to goat cheese to fruits, vegetables and herbs. Many greenhouses uh, on uh, the west coast uh, to south of uh, tomatoes, cucumber, squash, paprika and actually the best berries and fruits are from uh, north in Norway. It's so cold weather and so short season. It's like really small fruits and like so flavorful. And of course, Norway has some traditional local beverages. It brews several kinds of beer. The most common here in the States, I think, would be Nögneö. They have like porter or a vice beer or IPA. Norway also makes its own spirit. We have akavit, potato uh, liquor. Akavit is a variation of aquavit, which you'll find in Sweden and Denmark. It's a really strong alcohol percent, like really good to drink for uh, meat courses. Simon hasn't even been in the embassy's kitchen for a year yet, but he's already become a rising culinary star. He drew great praise at this year's Embassy Chef Challenge for his potato leek soup with slow-cooked Norwegian cod. And he prepared a lavish buffet dinner for the Kennedy Center's Nordic Cool Festival a few months ago. Not bad for a guy who, compared with many of his fellow embassy chefs, hasn't been in the business all that long. What was your very first cooking job? I was in a bakery. Uh, I was 15 years old, and I worked four days a week after my school, like washing the bakery down in the back and like selling bread. Fast forward seven years, and now Simon's baking his own bread and cooking his own seafood and stewing his own reindeer, etc., for the highest-ranking diplomat in Norway. 
and ever so apropos to his native land of joyful seafood-eating neighbors helping joyful seafood-eating neighbors, the 22-year-old chef couldn't be happier. It's an honor and pleasure every day. I love it. (laughs) To see photos of Simon hard at work, visit our website, metroconnection.org. When you're smiling When you're smiling So if you head northwest from the Embassy of Norway, not even half a mile, you won't be too far from the spot where our next story takes place. It's the Washington National Cathedral, and the 150,000-ton structure has been a D.C. treasure for more than a century now. But as Robbie Feinberg tells us, for some people, what they really treasure, what truly makes them happy, is what's inside the cathedral. More specifically, what's inside the cathedral's massive towers soaring high into the D.C. sky. To the uninitiated, bell ringing looks easy. It seems like all you need to do is just grab a rope, pull, and voila, you've created beautiful music. Something like this. Okay, remember, feet on ground... But when you watch Quilla Roth demonstrate the proper ring technique to two students at the Washington National Cathedral, it's obvious that this stuff requires some real skill. That's because you're pulling too hard. But I'm just trying to get behind everyone, so I pull really hard. Roth is the ringing master for the cathedral. She's in here almost daily, teaching and ringing with several dozen other ringers. The bells have been in the cathedral for almost 50 years, and Roth has been here right alongside them. She teaches change ringing. That's the process in which ten ringers pull ropes, each controlling a large bell at the other end. Together, the ringers produce a loud rhythmic sound that echoes onto the streets of D.C. every Sunday. But in the cathedral tower today, Roth's students are struggling. They've been learning to ring for nine months already, and they still haven't played a tune. Right now, they're stuck learning just one basic skill, making the bell ring when they want it to. That may sound easy, but... It's not. We can't say to somebody, you need to pull with this many pounds worth of force, for example. So we tell you, don't pull too hard and don't pull too soft, and we'll help you figure out what's too hard and what's too soft as you're doing it. For students like these, it can take months and sometimes even years of practice before they finally get to play true ringing methods. Those are mathematical patterns of notes that ringers have to memorize and perform. For now, though, it's just pull, 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 with seemingly no end in sight. But if a ringer can stay committed and get through that tough first stage, it's worth it. Just ask Mary Clark. I'm just a ringer. I'm a bell ringer. I'm a a -a ding-a-ling. I'm a bell person. They call me the bell lady at the church. Clark's life revolves around music and bells. She runs her own handbell choir. She's the director of instrumental music at her church. And, of course, she rings every Sunday at the cathedral. It all began back in 1964. A friend offered to give Clark a tour of the cathedral and to show her the bells, which had only been installed a year earlier. At first she resisted, but eventually she relented and toured the tower. It was love at first ring. It was a high. It really was. I looked forward to every Tuesday night ringing. It was a highlight of my week. I could not wait to get to the bell tower. 
From there, her love grew to include handbells and other musical choirs. Except for a few years here and there, Clark's played at the cathedral every Sunday for more than 45 years. But at a recent practice, Clark's not feeling that love. Because of an injury, her doctor told her she's not allowed to ring for eight weeks. So she's on the sideline, but she's happy to just be in the practice room as the bells clang around her. Oh my goodness, the challenge of ringing changes, learning new methods, being able to ring with a group of people. Clark says that chain ringing is less musical composition and more team sport. And when you look at the ten ringers here at practice, you can see that teamwork in action. The ringers are gathered in a circle, ropes in hand and bells at the ready. As they begin to play a tune, each ringer's gaze shifts from one rope to the next. They watch eyes, hands, feet, making sure they're coming in right on time. It's like they're speaking their own silent language, communicating with quick glances and head nods. Clark, again. It's almost impossible to explain to someone who's never done teamwork, but then if if you're talking about a baseball team, a basketball team, a football team, they know what you're talking about. The wonderful opportunity to get together and make it work is something you can't equal in any other way. But that hard work is what makes the ringers love this stuff. You might think of ringing as just pulling a rope, but Clark says that when everything comes together, it becomes so much more. It's almost like a trance. It does. It kind of lifts you off the ground. I mean, emotionally, not necessarily physically, better not. (laughs) But you you are. You're emotionally lifted to a, a higher level. Ringing, says Clark, has become her identity. It's made her who she is. What would I be doing today if I had never discovered ringing? The guy who brought me up in the tower to begin with, he kept after me all the time to come up with him, and and I finally did it to shut him up. And I didn't realize how it was going to affect me, and it did. I have thought, what would I do? I don't know. I don't seriously don't know because I didn't. I mean, I'm a ringer. To the general public... The Ringers are almost a secret society in D.C., high up in the cathedral tower. And Quilla Roth, the ringing master, likes it that way. We have rung for funerals for some former presidents. We have rung to mark 9-11. We have rung for positive things, for sorrowful things. And there is something very, it feels very special to get to do that and participate in things that are important to the nation I think it's very special to get to do that. The ringers may not be visible, she says, but their voice is loud, echoing across the city every Sunday afternoon. I'm Robbie Feinberg. You can see photos of ringers in action on our website, metroconnection.org. Happiness is finding a pencil. Pizza with sausage. Telling the time. If there are any big Charlie Brown fans out there, you may very well be familiar with this song. Yep, for Chuck and his buddies, happiness can be a lot of things, from catching a firefly to sharing a sandwich. Well, we wanted to know what happiness is for you. So we turned to our Public Insight Network, or PIN, and asked WAMU listeners, what has made you happy? 
a good laugh, a good deed, maybe a good dinner? Well, we got a lot of great responses, and Jacob Fenston headed out to meet some of the people who sent those responses in. Hi, I'm Dory Ballin. I'm a pre-K teacher at Clopper Mill Elementary School in Montgomery County. We were at lunch. This is um, down in D.C. I was teaching D.C. public schools. And I had a little one who brought a bag filled with black olives. And he was just plucking them out and eating them. And I went over and said, sweetie, don't you know how to eat black olives? And he looked at me and he's like, what? I said, no, that's not how you eat black olives. And I put like one little olive on each finger on both hands and kind of did monster hands, kind of like in his face. But the next day, <laughs> um, mommy came in with that, that tone like, I know my child is lying to me. And he had this look on his face like, mama doesn't believe me. And I looked at her and I sort of shook my head and I said, well, I did. Um, because that's the way you eat black olives as far as I know. You couldn't get the smile off his face. And just looking at him, because he was this little peanut, and he had this huge smile, and it was like all day. <laughs> and every time I looked at him, I giggled, and he giggled. And, and of course, at lunch, he brought his olives. <laughs> Last year, years and years later, I got an email announcing his engagement. It was from mom, and she recounted the story again and how he still talks about that. And my thought is he'll probably teach his children how to eat black olives that way. My name is Lita Hall. I'm a Silver Spring native. I, the first time in my life I ever cried because I was happy. I think it's the only time I ever cried because I was happy. When I was a little girl, I think I was about 10 or 11, my father was in the Navy and he was assigned to Vietnam. At one point while he was overseas, my mom told me that he would be coming home to visit. I remember I came in the front door and I came down the stairs and I had two friends with me and I came around the corner and I saw my dad and I remember I remember exactly where my dad was standing. I remember exactly where I, you know, where I was. I remember my friends just over my left shoulder. I remember my mom. I remember kind of how the kitchen looked. And I was so happy. I burst into tears and just ran at him, flung my arms around him. I hadn't realized at the time that I was kind of living with a baseline concern for my dad while he was overseas. You know, I was, I was just a kid. I didn't know much about the war, but I knew enough it was war. War is dangerous. And so somewhere in the back of my mind was this worry that he wouldn't come home. My name is Mary Ellen Michael. I live in a, in a kind of a rural area, uh, the Catoctin Mountains, lots of forest. The moment that made me very happy recently started out last November, right before Thanksgiving. I got a flyer in the mail from a neighbor who had um, lost his cat. And I was going to throw the flyer into the recycling bin, but I remembered my own experience of a cat that was missing for six months. And I found him in a community not far from here, about five miles away. So I decided, uh, rather than throwing the flyer away, I'd just hang on to it for a while. So I put it into a pile of papers that I was keeping. And Christmas came and went, and New Year's came and went, and I didn't think about the cat at all anymore. And then into January, it was cold, and we started noticing there was a cat in our front yard. 
I first I thought he was a very old cat, but then when I got a closer look at him, I could tell that he was a starving cat. And then I suddenly remembered that flyer, and I got the flyer out, and there was a picture on the flyer of this very fat cat laying on the couch with his favorite dog. The flyer said that the cat had six toes, so the next time I fed him, I got a good look at his feet, and sure enough, he had the six toes. The cat, when I said his name, he figured I must know who he was, so now he was safe. And so when his owner came to get him, he just, he was almost in tears. I mean, he just didn't know what to say because everybody had assumed this cat had died somewhere. And the cat was just, just rolling around because he was just so happy and he was licking everybody. And it just made me feel so good. It's something that I'll remember forever. That was Dory Balin, Lita Hall, and Mary Ellen Michael telling their stories to Metro Connection's Jacob Fenston. This piece was informed by the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the network by visiting metroconnection.org slash PIN. Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Kavitha Cardoza, along with reporters Lauren Ober and Robbie Feinberg. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast through the website or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll explore secrets. We'll revisit the dark secret that shocked D.C. political circles 20 years ago. We'll check out a new play that pierces the facade of domestic bliss. And we'll hear from a woman who conducted her own secret experiment on strangers. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. I totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, Uh, I need to have a label on it, though. But uh, it's a bit odd. I'm Rebecca Shear. Thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.